0: All right. It's good to see all of you tonight. Okay. We have talked many times about two things that have to happen before Christ returns. Number one, he's coming back for a holy bride. And so he's calling us into holiness. We're being called into holiness every day. And then number two, the gospel has to be preached to all nations. Matthew 24, verse 14 tells us, then the end shall come. So with that in mind, that's sort of what we're going to be going into tonight. So in Revelation seven, verse nine, it says, after these things, I looked, and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every tongue was standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Okay. Revelation seven, verse nine is a prophecy that hasn't taken place yet. But we know it's going to happen. Verse 9, no one could count how many people were there. So there had to have been a lot of people if no one could even count it. Now he makes it clear that this multitude is going to come from everywhere, from every nation, from every tribe, and every language is going to be represented. Now, this is the foundational scripture for today's lesson. Now, I think I had always seen evangelism as New Testament. I think I've always seen it that way. And I thought it was something that Jesus had instigated. But God had evangelism in his heart from the very beginning. And I want us to see that tonight. He was constantly trying to reveal himself to the entire world so he could pour his blessings out. That was his desire. Now, a lot of people think everything that could possibly be said about evangelism has already been said, because we've all heard lots of testimonies and lots of uh, preaching on evangelism, but there's a lot more. And so tonight, I think you're going to like this. I, I, I love this Bible study. So I'm going to pull one statement out from the Abrahamic covenant, which is the basis for the entire Old Testament. And uh, I want you to take a closer look. Now, after the flood, the next big recorded incident was the Tower of Babel. That was the next thing that's told in the Bible. And if you'll remember, at that time, uh, they all spoke the same language. And they all lived basically the same lives, and they lived basically in the same place. So it was really easy for one evil person now to get the entire population of the world at that time to gather together and be destructive. So because one person, if they have a lot of personality and everything, they can pull it all together. And so this was easy to do. And it had already started happening with the Tower of Babel because they were all in it together. They were going to build this tower clear up into the heavens. So to stop their evil plan now, God changed their language and he scattered them over the face of the earth. Up until then, they were living pretty much in the same area. But he scattered them over the entire earth and then their language changed and a lot of other things changed. Sometimes we don't stop to think that when their language changed, God changed other things too. They started forming different traits. They started forming different cultures, different looks, different hair colors, you know, different facial structures, and all these different places where the people went. And as the language changed, they became unique now as different tribes and different nations began to grow and they began to form. Now suddenly they couldn't join as one force against God. And so God began to work with smaller segments of people, because he had them separated. So maybe one segment would come against him, but it wasn't like the whole group came. And all of a sudden, we had Greeks and Italians and Spaniards and, uh, you know, we had Chinese and Ethiopians and on and on. Now, when we were studying the background leading up to Abraham, we find that the next chapter after the Tower of Babel was the genealogy of Noah's. Godly son Shem. That's the next thing in the Bible, the, the genealogy, and that genealogy led right up to Abraham and his call from God. Okay, now by sight it looked as though God changed the language of all the the evil people, scattered them around the world, and just forgot about them. That's what it looks like when you when you read that, and then called Abraham, and a lot of people feel like he called Abraham and uh, he made him an individual nation. Who would love and serve him. Forget these other people, you know, uh, I've got Abraham now and he's going to be my man. By sight, it looked that God had simply forgotten about the rest of the rebellious people in the world and had started all over again. But we're getting ready to find out something very wonderful about the character of God. In Genesis chapter 12, God had called Abraham out of the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, took him down to the land of Cana, gave him the land, and then made a very special covenant with him. Now, we're going to read that one more time so that I can pull out one very important phrase out of this covenant. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God said, Go away from your country, go away from your relatives, and go away from your father's household. In other words, he was saying, I want you to get away from all the idol-worshipping relatives. Get completely away from them. And then in verses 2 and 3, this is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So we find out in verse 2, he said, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great. Okay, this is known as the top-line blessing. When a, a theologian will talk about it, they'll, he'll call it a top-line blessing you know, when Angie was in college, she heard Don Richardson speak, and uh, she came home so excited and shared it with me, and so we wrote this Bible study together because we got so excited about it. But God said, Abram, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and I'm going to make your name great. And boy, he certainly done that for 4,000 years clear from the time of Abraham until present time, everybody knows about Abraham. He's made a great nation out of him, the entire Jewish nation. Okay, that's the top line blessing, but it doesn't stop there. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see what he said next. Okay, in the third verse, the last part of it, he said, and in you, and this is what most people don't see. They they hear where God says, I'm going to make of you a uh, great name, I'm, I'm going to bless you. But sometimes we forget to keep reading where it says, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, what families was he talking about? Okay, he's talking about all those families, all those tribes now who were scattered into the different parts of the world when their language changed. there at the Tower of Babel. Okay, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you first and then you're going to be the blessing to every one of those families that I have scattered around the earth. Now, remember, the people had been scattered right before the time of Abraham. They had just moved. They were all moving and going in in every direction. And by sight, it appeared that God had scattered them and then completely forgotten about them. But that was never the case. That was not what happened. This covenant with Abraham was God's provision for all of the families that had been scattered around the world and he did this to preserve and protect until the gospel could be offered to them that's what he was doing he was in one lump sum they were getting in a lot of trouble but when he scattered them out around the world then they could be ministered to in different places see the abrahamic covenant shows god's individual love for every single family on the face of the earth Now, it wasn't just God's love for mankind as a whole. He sees each family now, and it was important for God to offer a blessing to every individual family. That's what God was intending to do, to bless each each and every family. Now, he doesn't lump us all together. Now, from the moment that man sinned, from the moment that he rebelled now and turned to idol worship, God already had a plan whereby those families could be brought back to him. Now, it's this plan of God to bless all the nations that will eventually now bring to pass the prophecy now in Revelation chapter 7 that we just read, where people from every tribe, every tongue, every one of them are standing around the throne of God, worshiping and praising him. So God was working on it then to bring this to pass. And it starts right here with the Abrahamic covenant. So in Acts 17, 26 and 27 is a very important scripture And what it does, it fills in the blanks. Now, this was written in the New Testament in Acts. In verse 26 and 27, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not very far from any of us. Okay, I want us to read that again because I want you to really catch what he's saying here. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all of the face of the earth, all around the earth, having determined their appointed times and he determined their boundaries, the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. God's saying, they're going to seek me, and some of them will find me. Some of them will grope for me. He said, because I'm not far from any of them. Okay, verse 26. This was for every man and woman on earth. He determined their appointed time. He, He appointed where they were going to live, where I was going to live, where you're going to live. And he appointed the boundaries of our habitation, where we would live. So God didn't just scatter the people haphazardly all over the world. He didn't do that after the Tower of Babel. God himself determined the boundaries of our habitation, where people were going to settle, where they were going to live. And in verse 27, in the first part of verse 28, he determined their boundaries so that they could seek him. He put them where they could seek him. And it goes on to say, for in him we live and move and exist. Now, God didn't scatter the people and forget them. That's what it appeared when you first read that. If you just read through it, that's what it sounds like. But the plan of God from the beginning was to stop the evil scheming. Uh, What they were doing when they all were in one big group, God said, we're going to stop that. Uh, We're going to do this differently. So he moved them apart, put them each in their own individual place so that they could find God if they would grope for him. I thought that was an interesting word, grope for God. (laughs) And he said that he was very near to them, that they would be able to live and move and have their being in him if they would just choose that. So we see the compassion of God. He's gone to a lot of trouble to get each person in their own habitation where they could most likely find him. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was like a contract that God made with Abraham uh, to save all mankind. That was the purpose. Now, we've, we're all familiar with contracts. All of us have read contracts. Okay, what do we, they always say about a contract? If, if somebody hands you a contract, they tell you, be sure to read the entire contract. And most of the time, you'll find that what's on the top line of the contract is what you want to hear. It's what's going to be interesting to you. Now, in the secular world, they'll put the top line of the contract, what you want to hear, and then they'll put in fine print usually at the bottom what you really need to know. But a lot of times you'll skip that, you know. But God didn't write the bottom line of his contract in fine print. He said, top line blessings, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. But it's in order for you to, to be a blessing and in order for every family that's been scattered around the world to be blessed through you. So as I go through now, I'm going to be referring to top-line blessing and bottom-line blessings. And when I say top-line blessing, that's the blessings now that go directly to Abraham and, and his descendants. And then I'm going to be referring to bottom-line blessings, which means that God's people are blessed first so that bottom-line We can be a blessing to every single person that we meet. That's what it's all about. He blesses us, and it doesn't stop there. Bottom line blessing is so that we can bless everyone we come in contact with. Okay, now the formula for receiving blessings from God is right there in the Abrahamic covenant. It's just spelled out so simply. Anytime God wants to put a point across, he can say it so simply and so easy. But if we take it, we just think, oh, God, you know, you said uh, said a mouthful. Now, that formula is just as alive today as it was in the day of Abraham. God blesses us, and the main reason is in order for us then to become a blessing. We're not blessed just so we can go around, pat ourselves on the back, and, oh, God's been so good to me. Yes, he has been good to us, but it's for a reason, it's so then we can turn around and be a blessing. Now, I know you've heard this analogy before, but it does give us a truth, uh, in the Dead Sea, when the Jordan River flows down, now the Jordan River is just full of blessing and fish and, and life, and it comes down 1,500 feet below sea level and goes into the Dead Sea. So life is flowing in that water, but once that water goes into the Dead Sea, nothing is alive in the Dead Sea. Now a big reason for nothing being alive in the Dead Sea is because nothing flows out. It goes into the Dead Sea, but it's stuck there. Water flows in, nothing flows out. Now, God's way has always been to bless his children, but then the blessings have to flow out because if, the, if we receive our blessings and we keep them in and we don't let them flow out, we're going to find out that we become stagnated just exactly like the Dead Sea. So that's a perfect analogy. Now, it was easy to look in the Old Testament and think that God was only interested in his Jewish nation. When you just read through the Old Testament first, that's, the, that's kind of the impression you get because he kept them so separated, and he kept them so protected uh, from the pagan idol worshipers. And it appears that he didn't care one iota about the pagans. It, It almost appears when you read through that God didn't care about them. They're over here, they're doing their own thing, and he just cares about his people. But he was keeping his people separated because he did care so much. He was caring that much is why he kept them separated. He had to keep them from intermingling with the idol worshipers. Or they would have become just like them and the plan of God, the plan then for salvation would have completely been gone. It would have been aborted. Now the northern tribe did intermingle with the pagan nation. That's the only one and they were lost to the Assyrians and uh, that's why they're called the lost tribe because they intermingled with pagan worship And they were taken away. Now, when Israel came out of their 400 years of Egyptian bondage, if you'll remember, they've been gone for 400 years. So when they come back, the land that God has given to them, it's filled up with foreigners, filled up with idol worshipers. And so Joshua, God had him literally spend all of his life until he was in old age, driving them out. Because God knew when these foreigners were allowed to live in their land, when they were allowed to keep on worshiping their false gods, that it would corrupt the very ones who were supposed to be preserving the knowledge of the one true God. And he knew everything would go down the drain. So God cares about the pagan world. And it was in their best interest now for him to keep their worship separated at all costs. Whatever it took, he had to keep them separated from the people who were serving him so that the ones carrying the truth would not be corrupted. And they would have been. If they, we find that every time they intermingled with the nations of the world, they always went downhill. And so God was separating them out to preserve his people. And that's why God said in Exodus nineteen five and 6, This is why he said to Israel, if you will obey my voice, and if you'll keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples of the world, for all of the earth is mine. Okay, I'm going to be showing you something through the Old Testament now that was vitally important in order for us to know that the heart of God has always been a heart for evangelism. I would never have thought that until I started studying this and I realized God's heart was definitely evangelistic. It didn't start with Jesus. It started with God. And we find that throughout the Old Testament, God was continually reacting out to the Gentiles. He was keeping his people back so that they didn't get affected. And in Exodus 19, verse 5, he said, if you keep my covenant, if you keep my covenant. Okay, what covenant was he talking about? Okay, he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. That was that main covenant that he gave to to his man Abraham when he found this man who would serve him and be faithful to him. Okay, what did they have to keep? They had to keep God's laws. And God would bless them, and then their part was to, in turn, be a blessing now after they had been blessed. Okay, verses 5 and the first part of verse 6, he said, And then you will be a kingdom of priests. I used to read that, and I thought, what does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? I thought, what, what did God mean here? Okay, when you think about it, a priest is someone who ministers to the needs of people and ministers to, the, uh, to God. That's what a priest is. Now, if they were a kingdom of priests, how can they be that if they were all priests? Who were they going to minister to? You know, if they were all priests, whose needs were they going to be able to take to God if they were all priests? Well, in verse 5... It says, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth. Okay, God had not forgotten those people. That's the bottom line of, of the Abrahamic covenant. And it's really spelled out right here in this phrase, kingdom of priests. Abraham's descendants were to be a blessing to all the families of the earth verse 6 even the ones who got scattered all the ones who got scattered after the Tower of Babel and he said and you're going to be a kingdom a whole kingdom of priests and all those in the Jewish nation were to be priests to all the other nations in the world that's what he sent them out to do he said I'm going to send you out and you're going to be priests to to the other, to all these other tribes that have been sent out into the world. And you'll take the needs of these other nations to God. So the plan of God started working right there when he made them all a kingdom of priests. And God says, you're going to obey me. You're going to go out. You're going to take my word. And when, when the people hear, you're going to bless them as they come to know me. You will take their needs then to, to me. And you'll be a blessing by taking their needs to me. You'll be a kingdom of priests. Now, no other culture in the world has a covenant that has influenced every tribe and every nation except the Abrahamic covenant, when you think about that. Okay, now I want us to see how important the bottom line of that covenant was to God. See, the Jewish people saw those top-line blessings, but it was the bottom line of the covenant that was important to God, and one of the things he came against the hardest was when they violated the bottom line of their covenant. I mean, they all knew that top line blessing, but very few of them really realized that there was a bottom line blessing. And it's all written there right in the same covenant to Abraham, but they pick the top and they, they don't go ahead and read the whole thing. Now, when they caused the name of God to be blasphemed among other nations, and let me clarify some terms. I think you know that when I say Jew that I'm referring to the Israeli people. Okay, the Abraham descendants, we call them Jews. Jesus was a Jew. So the Jewish nation was the chosen nation of God, and all of the rest of the world, all of the families of the world, all the nationalities in the world who were not Jews were considered Gentiles. And so God only sees two groups. Now, we may go out and we see the Chinese and we see the Spaniards and we see all these different groups, but not God. He sees Jews and Gentiles. That's the separation that God makes, and that's all he sees. Okay, I'm going to give you a few Old Testament examples where it was not just the Jews' sin that upset God. He was upset because in their sinning, they were a bad witness to the Gentile nations. They probably thought God wasn't even interested in these pagan nations. But God was saying, I'm gonna bless you in order for you to be a blessing. And the blessing they were supposed to be was to take what they had received from God and then share it with the world. So they were violating their covenant and many of them never even realized that. Even Abraham didn't fully understand the bottom line blessing. He understood top-line blessing that God was going to bless him. But he didn't really see that in the same sentence, God was saying, and then you will be a blessing to the world. He didn't see that. Like I say, he understood that he was going to be blessed. He fully understood that God was going to make of him a great nation. He understood that. But he didn't understand then that he was supposed to turn around and be a blessing to the Gentiles. He wasn't seeing that. And so we find him, he tricked Pharaoh, and later he tricked King Abimelech by telling that Sarah was his sister. So he was tricking them. He violated his covenant when he caused them to sin. And in Genesis 20, verse 9, Abimelech called Abraham and he said, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not have been done. It's written so clearly that the nation of Israel was blessed in order to bless all the other families of the earth. I mean, it's told over and over, but somehow we missed that. And they certainly missed that. They didn't realize they were being blessed to be a blessing to the world. They were being blessed because we're the the family of God. We're his chosen people. And that's what they were seeing. Now, how could they miss it when it was spelled out so clearly over and over and over through the Old Testament? Well, the Lord reminded me how many times I have read the Abrahamic covenant. It hadn't dawned on me really what it was saying. See, we have a tendency to hear kind of what we want to hear. Abimelech showed a lot more integrity here than than Abraham did. This old pagan king was actually teaching Abraham a lesson in ethics. Now, even though Abraham violated the bottom line of his covenant, he honored God you know, he loved getting the blessings, you know, and uh, God did honor his covenant. Top line blessing, God did exactly what he told Abraham he was going to do, and Abraham is blessed. But God blessed him anyway with blessings that he didn't deserve because Abimelech got blessed, but it was according to the rules of the covenant because Abraham certainly hadn't blessed him. And, um, So in verse seven, Genesis 26 and seven, God said to Abimelech in a dream, he said, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. Therefore, I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her talking about Sarah. And then God said, restore the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. Okay. Now this Gentile king, he was blessed through Abraham. Now, this is important because in Genesis 26, verse 4, every time God tells the Israelite nation that he is going to bless them, at the same time, God states emphatically that they are then to bless the rest of the world. And they're only hearing, God's going to bless me. But every time when you go back and look, the next thing God says, and you will be a blessing. The end of the world. Genesis 26, 4. God said, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all of these lands. Okay, but the very next thing he said, and by your descendants, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, they were hearing, I'm going to multiply you as many as the stars of the heaven. I'm going to give you all of these wonderful blessings. They heard that. But the very next thing they didn't hear, that in you, all the nations of the earth then will be blessed. It's going to go from me to you and then from you out to the land. Okay, how have we missed the bottom line of God's covenant for so long? How have we missed that? How, how have we not seen that? God is reminding Abraham again of the original covenant. He said, I'm going to bless you and then you'll be a blessing. You know, you can look at the life of David and see that he didn't even understand this. David was a man after God's own heart. But when he sinned, God pointed out where he had violated the bottom line of the covenant. Right after David killed Uriah and after he took Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet came and he said, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite. You have taken his wife and you've killed him. Okay, it's all in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. But I want you to notice that Uriah is not an Israelite brother. He's a Hittite. He's a Gentile. So at first glance, we would think that David's only offense was murder and adultery, as if that's not enough, you know. But there was so much more. What was really upsetting God, uh, if he had killed a fellow Jew and taken his wife, then he would have had to have been punished or something would have happened because of the murder and the adultery. But we have so concentrated on the sin of murder, the sin of adultery, that we've not seen past that to see the violation that God saw in verse 14, and it tells us what the real offense was of David. In in chapter 12, verse 14, David violated the bottom line of his Abrahamic covenant. And that's what God was so upset about. Bottom line, David was blessed in order to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And God said, instead of blessing Uriah, you have given the foreigners a reason to blaspheme me. So God was so upset because he said, what you did to Uriah, you... You, you didn't take the blessings that I've given you and go out and bless the foreigner. You, you didn't do that. You didn't fulfill the second half of the covenant. And so in, instead of blessing his enemies by pointing them to God, David had cursed the Hittite, the Gentile, by giving them a reason to blaspheme God. Now, we tend to think that blessing our enemies is a New Testament covenant. Many times that's what we think. Well, blessing our enemies, that's because we're in the New Testament. But that's not so. The nature of God has never changed. That was the heart of God from the very beginning. And it was spelled out in his first major covenant that he gave to the people, the Abrahamic covenant. It was spelled out. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And immediately he said, and you will be a blessing to the nations. Now, too often Christians will bend over backwards for a Christian brother. You know, everybody in here, you'll do almost anything to help your Christian brother or sister. And that's good. That's a part of the top line blessing. But too often, a person will feel that he can treat the heathen any old way because he doesn't belong to God. So it really doesn't matter. And I know there's a lot of Christians that feel that way. But here in Exodus 22, verse 21, God says, you shall not wrong a stranger. You shall not wrong someone that's not of you. You're to be a blessing to those outside of our covenant. And when we do, we're violating the very bottom line reason for God's blessing. The whole bottom line reason is so that not just we be blessed, but we extend that blessing to the world. We're all blessed in order to bottom line be a blessing so the unsaved will want what we have. They'll see what it's all about and they'll want it. On our jobs, we need to do the best quality work that we do for the non-believing bosses. And sometimes a lot of people will feel like, oh, he's not a Christian anyway. It's no big deal if I don't do it quite right. Uh, and that those are the ones that God says that we uh, need to hold up God's name in highest esteem by treating them the best so they want what we've got, so they see that we have something special. But when we don't do that, what we're doing, we're not bringing shame on ourselves. We're bringing shame on God. Now, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And literally, the bottom line of that covenant is that we're to be a blessing to the unbeliever in ways that will constantly point them to Christ. When you're good to an unbelieving boss, he notices that and he he starts looking. What is it that you have that I don't have? And he starts noticing. That's what was intended Now, that was God's plan from the very beginning. Now, David sinned, and he repented, and God forgave him. But the reason I wanted to point that out is because God was so explicit about the seriousness of his bad conduct to the Gentile nation. That's what he was upset with David about, that that David had caused the foreigner not to be blessed. Now, when God makes a promise, when he makes a covenant or a contract, he keeps it and he intends for us to keep it. And he keeps it even with the unbeliever. Now, it's so very important to God for us to keep our part of the covenant. Now, I want us to look at the longevity of God's commandments. So often we'll make a promise and we'll remember it for days or weeks or sometimes months. We'll remember, I made a covenant. I made a promise here. I'm going to keep it. And that promise will be important to us for a long time. But sometimes, as years go by, that promise tends to fade into the background. But not so with God. It doesn't matter when God makes a promise. It can be a thousand years later, you know, hundreds of years later, or whatever. That promise is as real to him as it was the day that he made it. And that's why the land in Israel still belongs to the Jews. God gave that land to the Jews, and he's not going to take it back, and he's not going to let anybody else take it back. It was his covenant that he gave, and when he makes a promise to someone, God keeps his promises, and it's very important to him that we keep our promises, especially, bottom line, to the unbeliever. He, he expects that even most. Now, in 2 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, the famine. And so finally, David sought the Lord, and uh, he sought the presence of the Lord, and he asked, where's this famine coming from? And the Lord said, it is Saul and his bloody house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel okay, these were foreigners, they were the remnants of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, and Saul sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Every covenant was a contract, it was a promise. And that's why when you find a promise from God, if you fulfill now your part, you can be assured that In the fullness of time, God's going to fulfill his part. You don't ever have to worry about it. If he's made a promise to you, if you do what he's requiring of you, you don't have to worry. It may take a while, but God is going to fulfill his part. Okay, now I'm going to give you a good example of that, what I just read there in 2 Samuel 21. Saul, years and years before this had happened, and yet God never forgot. He never forgot that he had made a promise and Saul became a curse instead of a blessing when he came back and he killed these Gibeonites because he didn't, he may not have even remembered that a covenant had been made with them years before, and I thought, Lord, how could Saul have been held responsible? That covenant was made hundreds of years before he he was there, but boy... God never forgets a covenant. He never forgets a promise. And so you can read this later. But the promise had been made in Joshua 9, 3 through 18. Because many, many years before, when Joshua had brought the people out of the wilderness, brought them into the promised land, the Gibeonites had tricked Joshua, if you'll remember. God had said, I want you to drive all the inhabitants out of the land. But they tricked Joshua. They dressed in ragged clothes and they made Joshua think they had come from a far country. And so Joshua made a covenant with them. He was wrong, but he made that covenant with them. Now, even after he found out that he had been tricked, Joshua still kept his part of the covenant. Now, There are certain ways, if we make a covenant that we shouldn't have made, there are ways for us to repent and and for God to undo the covenant. But Joshua didn't take his way out. He kept the covenant. And he chose to go ahead and honor it. And so when Joshua honored the covenant, then God expected all of Israel to honor it because a covenant had been made. Now, if Joshua had stopped the covenant, it would have been fine. But he didn't. He he kept it in existence. So God said, okay, okay. That covenant's in effect. I expect everyone to keep it. And that covenant had not been undone. It was still in effect. And that's how important covenants are to God. And so when, even though it had been years later, King Saul might not have even remembered that a covenant had been made. Still, he was in terrible sin when he violated the covenant. And you say, well, God cared that much about the Gentiles. Why did he tell Joshua to drive them out of the land? Okay, this is very important because the entire plan and purpose of God would have been aborted if Israel had settled in and around the pagan nations. Now, for the very sake of the Abrahamic covenant, God had to keep his Jewish nation separated out so that he would have a nation that was still true to him in order to be able to send his Messiah through that nation. He had to do that. Now, this principle of the Abrahamic covenant of God blessing his people now to be a blessing, it's given over and over and over. In fact, uh, it's so prominent in the Old Testament that Angela decided one day that she was going to count how many times. And she counted over 100 references to this part of the Abrahamic covenant where uh, a covenant was made and God honored it you'll find that you can never read your Bible quite the same again because on every page you'll begin seeing this principle of the Abrahamic Covenant. See, God was making a way for the Gentiles to be brought back, and it was his plan from the very beginning. That's what he had in mind. He scattered them throughout the earth so that they couldn't gather together and do harm, but he never forgot them. His plan was always to come to a place where he brought them back. Now, that should put all of us as Gentiles literally on our face in Thanksgiving because the provisions now for our salvation, they're not happen chance, They're not last-minute coincidences. We were planned from the very beginning, and God literally birthed a nation. He birthed the Israelite nation, not just to have a people that were called by his name, and and blessed, but also to have a channel through which every nation, every tribe, every uh, Gentile that had been scattered could be brought back to him. He had that plan from the beginning. Now, the Jewish nation was actually supposed to have been missionaries to the Gentiles. That was God's plan. He planned for his Jewish nation to take the gospel, to take the, the good news to the world. Now, if they had ever understood the covenant made with their father Abraham, they would have known that they had been blessed with the Messiah to in turn have the privilege of taking the Messiah to the world, to evangelize the world, but they never saw that. They never saw that that was their purpose in life. Now, we think of of, uh, evangelism as a New Testament endeavor, but it's ever been as much Old Testament as it was New Testament. God intended his chosen people to be the ones to do that. Now, if Jonah had understood the covenant, that his people were blessed in order to be a blessing, if he had understood that and that he was supposed to take this to every tribe and every nation, then he would not have felt so imposed upon when God called him to Nineveh as an evangelist. If he had realized he was simply fulfilling his part of the covenant, it would have taken away all that anger and all that resentment. He was so angry that God was sparing these, these uh, pagans, you know, in Nineveh. But he's not realizing his whole purpose was to take the gospel and save uh, the pagans. Now, the Jewish nation was big on teaching their children and their children's children about the top blind blessings. You can't go in Israel without a child having been taught by either their parents or or somebody else there that you are blessed. You are a part of the, the Jewish nation and you are very blessed. You're blessed beyond anybody in this world. But they never... You never hear any of them teaching the bottom line reason for their being blessed. That they are blessed so in turn they can turn around and be a blessing to the Gentiles. They're not taught that, but yet it's right there in the word. They never understood it, that's why, and so because of that, they hated the Gentiles instead of realizing they were to be the missionaries to the Gentiles. Now, Paul probably had a better understanding of the bottom line blessing than any of the other Israelites because he saw and understood the call that he was to bless the Gentiles with the gospel. We see Paul understood that. And that's probably why he was so hard on Peter. When Peter at Antioch, now, he was eating with the new uh, Gentile converts until some of the Jewish brethren arrived. And as soon as the Jewish brethren arrived, Peter quit eating with the Gentiles and he got so upset and he started running back and eating only with, with his brethren. Well, Paul saw that, and in front of everyone, he rebuked Peter and said, you know, this you're hypocritical, and he, he rebuked him, and I used to think, boy, he came on a little bit strong, but it was probably a lot bigger issue than I realized because a lot more was at stake because it was a violation of the bottom line of that Abrahamic covenant, and that's what uh, Paul understood that, you know, and, and that's what he was saying, you know, you violated the bottom line of our covenant. Now Paul saw Peter as the head of the church at Jerusalem, which he was, and he saw that he was violating the covenant that the Jews were supposed to be a blessing to the Gentiles. And so he was rebuking him for leaving the Gentiles and running back to his Jewish brethren when they came. Even Peter was not seeing that he was called uh, to take the truth to the Gentiles. Now God had to later Reveal it to Peter in a dream. If you'll remember, the sheet came down and the unclean animals were in the sheet. And God told him, kill and eat. And if you'll remember, Peter said, oh, I can't, Lord, they're unclean. And God said, don't call any man unclean that I've made clean. Now, we, we see that uh, Paul understood that. But, but Peter was just now learning that. And he's a pretty good example of how practically all of the Israelites felt. They felt like they were better than. See, the Jewish race had to stay pure in order to be that channel of blessing. But we've misunderstood the reason for that separation. They, they misunderstood it too. They thought they were separated because they were better than the Gentiles. But they were only being kept pure. They were being separated to be kept pure, you know, so that they could preserve the covenant. That's what it was all about. Now, the evangelistic heart of God never quit searching for the lost world. You can read parts of the Old Testament and think, well, God got angry with them and, and walked away from them, but the heart of God was constantly uh, pulling the people back. His only thought was ho- how he could bring people to himself, and it was for the sake of the Gentiles so that we wouldn't have an excuse then to reject God. Uh, God's witness in front of the pagans was so important. And when you start studying this from this angle, you start seeing that everything God did was to get the the pagans in a position to be able to receive Jesus. Now, in the same way, our witness in front of those who don't yet know Jesus, it should be the very most important thing to us, too. God's very interested with our witness because literally the Abrahamic covenant is at stake. Literally, it's at stake. Now Jesus understood that covenant, and that's why when he saw the Syrophoenician woman come in with her demon-possessed daughter, Jesus said, "Wait, I, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And I used to read that, and I thought, "Lord, why, you know, why wouldn't you have been happy to have helped her?" You know, and until I saw this and realized the top line blessing and the bottom line blessing, top line. Jesus was sent to the Jewish race as the Messiah to bless them. And then the lost sheep then of Israel, they were supposed to be the ones to go out and bring in the pagan world. And uh, that was how all the, the families of the earth were going to be blessed. And so it was the Jews who were supposed to bless the Gentiles. And that fact was clearly stated over and over. And that's why then this gentile woman understood this and she said i understand you were sent that it's it's not you that's supposed to come to us your people are supposed to bring us in but she said i'll just take the crumbs just give me the crumbs her faith opened the door for her then to get her miracle and she did now, that statement made by God has never changed. It was God's plan from the very beginning to bless the Jews and then for the Jews to evangelize the world. That was his plan from the beginning, and, and it never changed. That's what, that's what he, his plan was. That's what he intended. Now, when they rejected Jesus the first time, they missed out on the privilege of being the evangelist to us. They missed out on that privilege. Now, we have become the spiritual Israel, when we accepted the Messiah. And so top-line blessing, God wants to bless every one of us beyond our fondest imagination. You know, he wants to bless us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. He wants to bless us in every way and top-line. And then in order that bottom line, we can be a blessing to the non-believing world and bring them to Christ. That's the, it's the same thing all over again for us as he planned it for the Jewish nation. Now, the scripture in Revelation 9 verse 7 that we read at first is a prophecy that hasn't yet been fulfilled. But John said in Revelation that he saw people from every nation, every family, every tribe, every tongue in that multitude around the throne, so many that they couldn't be counted. And we'll be the ones privileged to help fulfill that prophecy. God intends us now to be the ones to fill around the throne these people coming to Christ and bless them by taking Jesus to them. And you know, there's a lot of Christians today and they're just happy because they're saved and one day they're going to go to heaven. But when we do that, we are violating our covenant just as much as the Jewish people violated their covenant when they didn't take the gospel to, to the pagan world. And when we just say, you know, my four no more or my little group, we've we've missed the whole thing that God intended he intended for the Jewish nation to, d- to be the evangelist for the world and now he intends us you know to be the evangelist for the entire world to bring them and literally fill up that throne at the end we've been blessed with a savior and it's our privilege and our responsibility to pass that blessing on you know the bible tells us freely as we've received we need a freely give And we're blessed to be a blessing. Now, it's sad that the Jewish people missed out on a big part of their calling. They missed out on the fact that they were supposed to be the evangelists to the world. But now, we need to make sure that we don't miss out on our calling in exactly the same way that they missed out. And it'd be very easy for us to do, because I know a lot of people, they don't do any evangelism. But it's our call now, just like the Jewish people were called to take the the blessings of God, the old Abrahamic covenant, they were called to take that to the world. They failed. But we're called now to take Jesus to the world. And we're called to do what the Jews failed to do in their time. And if we're not constantly thinking, who can I bring to Jesus? Who doesn't know the Lord that I have contact with? Who who can I bring into the kingdom? If we're not constantly having that in the back of our mind, then we're doing exactly the same thing that the Jewish people did when when they failed in their calling. And so tonight, I just want to pray and I want to say, Father, I pray that you'll make this come alive on the inside of each one of us. Father, it's so easy to do just exactly what the Jewish people did way back there in the Old Testament. To be so excited about of the top line blessing, how we're being blessed, that we forget to see the bottom line blessing, just like they forgot. They forgot that they were supposed to be the evangelist to the entire world. We forget many times. We're saved. We have Jesus in our heart. We know one day we're going to live eternally with you. But Father, sometimes we forget to look around and see who is it that I come in contact with from time to time who doesn't know Jesus. Father, sometimes we forget that is as much our responsibility today as it was their responsibility in, in, uh, in the Old Testament days. And Father, just as they failed, Father, we don't want to fail. We don't want to do the same thing. So Father, I pray that you'll help us to see top-line blessing, we have Jesus. Bottom-line blessing, we get to share Jesus with the world. And that's our responsibility. And we will be held responsible for that. And so, Father, we just want that to come alive on the inside of us, that we don't want there to be any pagan anywhere close to us that we haven't at least given them the opportunity to reach out and receive Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll cause this just to come alive on the inside of each one of us. That it'll just uh, spark and 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 start a flame on the inside of us, where uh, we we're just constantly looking to see: Does that person know Jesus? Is this person? Uh, 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 are, are they living for God? Or, or do? Am I in their pathway to be able to share with them? Father, cause this to come alive. Build a bonfire on the inside of each one of us, Father that will not miss out on any opportunity to bring people into the kingdom. We thank you for that, Father. We want to be a part of the ones that help bring these people that we read about at the end of Revelation, the thousands and thousands of people, so many that they couldn't even be counted. Help us to be a part of the ones who have brought many, many, many of those uh, so that they'll be, around your throne room, praising you at the end, Lord. Help us to be a part of that. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.